Bonjour. I'm Terence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, coming to you almost live from Café Terence in Paris's 3e arrondissement. Today and every Saturday, I will be joined by colleagues to discuss books, movies, and song. And at the finale of every broadcast, I will sing a selection from the American Songbook. Good morning. Uh, this is Terence Galenter with my friend and colleague, John Baxter here in Paris, author of The Most Beautiful Walk in the World, and as a perfect irony, uh, The Most Beautiful Walk in the World cannot be taken, as John is incarcerated in his apartment, as all of us are here in Paris. Good morning, John. Good morning, Terrence. How are you doing? I'm, I'm fine. It's a beautiful day here. The sun is out. Sky is blue. I've been to the market already, so I have plenty of uh, vittles for the rest of the week. Uh, John, what have, what have you been reading to, in this uh, period of confinement? I know you're writing a book, but before we get to that, what have you been reading? Yeah, people ask me this. It's interesting, actually. Uh, you think somehow that you would read some massive tome, you know, uh, get back to reading Ulysses or Moby Dick or something like that. But but I find I get a bit bored with just sitting and reading. So. I think the best thing is, is something that makes you think a bit, that makes you kind of put down the book and, and give some thought to it. So uh, in a couple of cases, I've been reading some science fiction novels that I, I happen to like, particularly by William Gibson, um, his book, um, um, uh, um, uh, Passage Re um, Recognition, and also um, a couple of his uh, earlier ones like uh, Mona Lisa Overdrive and so on, because I, th I think the, the ideas in them are, are very relevant and you can apply them to life in the present day. And another thing that, that I, I have a book I've, I've been carrying around with me in different editions all my life practically, it's um, the Faber Book of Modern Verse. Uh, it was first done in the 1930s, and uh, I'm, I've owned a copy since I was a teenager. And, and I just find it really interesting to actually have time to sit down and read poetry, which is something you don't normally do. But when, you, when you're locked up like this, it, it's a great way of kind of freeing your imagination. Yeah, we do. We find ourselves doing uh, things that we've neglected for a long period of time. Uh, listeners may not know, but you started out as a science fiction writer, uh, writing for magazines when you were a teenager in Australia. Uh, so it's, and going back, you say, to the, uh, the, the book of verse. So it seemed like you're regressing to your childhood. Uh, in a way, I suppose, yes. Uh, but aren't we all? <laughs> uh, as you get older, you get, you get younger, I think. Um, uh, and also you realize the core values that, that you have today, they go back that far. I, I've, I've often thought that uh, really the most useful things I learned was before I was seven years old. Uh, after that, uh, it was all downhill pretty well. Yeah, no, it's, uh, and you, uh, as I know, you're also writing, and people may not be aware also that long before you became the, uh, probably one of the most uh, well-known uh, raconteur and uh, uh, conversationalist about Paris, uh, you were a film critic and a film historian. I mean, I first discovered you in the early 70s, long before I knew you, for a little uh, volume called uh, Hollywood in the 30s. Uh, and later on, you wrote about people like uh, Joseph von Sternberg. Uh, but you're currently working on, uh, I think you've just about finished the manuscript on Charles Boyer. That's right, yes, an actor that I've always admired, uh, who is pretty well forgotten today, unfortunately. But uh, in, his, in his time, he was uh, the, the great uh, continental actor. He was 
he was the man who more or less uh, brought brought France to the United States. Uh, he never he never lost his accent. He always spoke and acted as a Frenchman, uh, and uh, he he was the one who introduced to American audiences the concept of the uh, of the great French lover with films like uh, Algiers and so on. Uh, and I always liked his work and I admired him. And then just by chance, a year or two back, an, an, a, a local a French um, documentary maker asked me to uh, do an interview for a documentary he was doing about uh, Boyer. And it kind of piqued my interest. So um, uh, I found a publisher who was prepared to do uh, a biography. And yes, as you say, I just finished it, in fact. Uh, what, what are some because of the... I, some of the Boyer oh, films that you recommend people uh, try to look for now in this period oh, well, of confinement. I, 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 I love Algiers, of course. Algiers is, is marvelous. He never did say, come with me to the Casbah, but, uh, but I still mean, can at you, all. Can you watch that film and, uh, without, without thinking of Jean Gabin? Uh, well, I know. Yes, Gabin made the original, and then uh, the producer Walter... Uh, yes, Pepe Lamoco. The producer, Walter Wanger, bought the rights and then destroyed uh, all the copies of Pepe Lamoco he could find. Fortunately, not all copies, so it's now available again. But um, uh, in fact, the, 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 the version Algiers is, is almost shot for shot. It's surprisingly uh, similar. But the difference is it's a different. Um, interpretation to the character of Pepe. Gabin makes him a bit of a thug, you know, because that was Gabin's way. Uh, but Boyer was very suave. He was an educated man. He uh, had been through university. He's, uh, in, the, in the film, he plays a, a man of discrimination. And uh, he plays it with a very different vibe. So, I mean, they're both great movies, but uh, I prefer uh, the... Um, I prefer the, the American one. But then, of course, there's Gas. Who, who directed that film, where, John? Uh, I'm sorry? Who directed the film? John Cromwell. Oh, John uh, Cromwell, yeah. James yeah, Cromwell. Good director. That's right, exactly, yes. In, in fact, I knew him a little in, in London uh, uh, when I was doing um, events for the, for the American uh, um, embassy. We invited Cromwell around uh, to talk about uh, Algiers and... Uh, he was he was wonderful, very lively guy. The prisoner of Zenda. Um, say again. The prisoner of Zenda. Uh, yes, he did prisoner of Zenda. He he, he was a he's very very prolific, very interesting uh, a director. Little Lord Fauntleroy and things like that. Um, but he's um, he, he I found him very agreeable, very interesting. But Boyer, um, Boyer was very good at picking directors. He, he worked with George Cukor. On Gaslight, for instance, uh, which is one of one of Ingrid Bergman is one of his best things, um, and uh, of course he did Conquest with Clarence Brown, where he played Napoleon. Uh, he was a very, very various actor, very, very protean. Do you remember he, um, in the early '60s he was part of, uh, I guess, I think it was called Four Star Productions with uh, David Niven. Uh, I think Dick Powell was involved in this. He did a series called The Rogues. That's right, yeah, Coot exactly. and Gladys Cooper. That's right, exactly. And on and, uh, the odd day when Gig Young wasn't drunk, the, the, uh, he, he appeared in the film as well. Yeah, well, well, yes, it was a series of 52 programs with uh, uh, Niven and Boyer making occasional appearances. Dick Powell was kind of the businessman. He was behind the scenes. And, yes, they had Gig Young as kind of 
cadet uh, uh, part of the family. Uh, but of course, as you say, Gig Young was an alcoholic and halfway through, uh, he had to be uh, replaced by Larry Hagman. So they, they kind of, uh, you know, split the role for a while. Uh, it might have gone on for a second series if it hadn't been for Young's uh, alcohol problems. But, you know, that was the last thing that Four Star uh, did. They, after that, they sold the company and uh, uh, went away with the millions they'd made. It they made did, yeah. I, I always loved David Niven. And I, I, Gladys Cooper, I just, uh, again, in this period of confinement, I rewatched for, I don't know, the tenth time, Now Voyager. Ah, uh, uh, yes. <laughs> Love that film. And she was quite, quite remarkable. Irving Rapper. Exactly. With, you no, know, with Claude Rains. I, th we've, I think we, you and I have talked about uh, actors who have not been given their due in print, and certainly to me, one is uh, Claude Rains. Now, Claude Rains was an extraordinary actor. He, was ju he just lacked the, the gravitas, I think, to be a really powerful leading man. He was just a, a little bit too short as well, and a little bit kind of too gentlemanly. So he was very good in, in roles as slightly sinister characters, Men behind the scenes, uh, but he wasn't really could, wasn't really a hero type character. He's like, no, he's one of those actors who never gave a bad performance. Anything that he's in is pretty much worth watching just to see him. Yeah, no, I, I agree. A lot of these people were were quite remarkable like that. They they stuck in a narrow uh, area, but they were very good within it. The other guy that you and I have talked about at, at, at great length is uh, Michael Curtis or Cortese or whatever the Americanization of his Hungarian name is, who was a, my God, it seemed like he made four or five films a year for Warner Brothers in the 30s up until the, the early 50s. And you could never pin down his style because he could make uh, Captain Blood, uh, Robin Hood, uh, Four daughters, the, a young man, born, it seemed there was and nothing then, he couldn't do and, and do it no, in about 90 minutes and um, just move you through that story. Oh, exactly. Yeah, well, what I like of his are his uh, 1930s Warner Brothers program pictures like the, the Philo Vance um, detective stories, the Kennel murder case, and also, of course, the very good horror movies he did, uh, Mystery of the Wax Museum and Dr. X both of them in two-color, technicolor. Uh, and then later on, um, uh, things like uh, Bright Leaf, things like The, the Turning Point. Um, he was remarkable. And then, of course, right to the very end, he made uh, uh, Sin Away the Egyptian um, right into, into the Scope era. And was, in fact, he was making a thing called the Comancheros when he died. He was oh, actually, yeah, John Wayne. Right. That's right, yeah. Now, he was a remarkable man. I, I, uh, he's somebody I would have liked to have write, written a book about, but um, unfortunately, there was no vogue for, for him when I was writing a lot of film books. And since then, there have been a couple of, of quite good biographies. So uh, I was beaten to well, the I punch. still think he, I, I would like to see him backsterized because I, I know the book you're talking about, which is actually quite, uh, quite good from your, your publisher, University of Kentucky. Uh, That's right. But I, I, I think there is a, uh, a style and a, a joie de vivre that you would bring to it. I'm always reminded of, you know, David Niven, uh, his memoir was titled Bring on the Empty Horses. Because, uh, if you know, as you know the story, uh, Curtis had a, a very difficult time with the English language, which he fractured mercilessly. And uh, in the scene in Charge of the Light Brigade... And when he wanted the uh, the horses to show up without riders, he had just screamed as a as a as a director, "Bring on the empty horses!" 
Yeah, Among right. other things yeah. that he'd had to say that were quite amusing without being uh, being intentional. Uh, John, you also uh, wrote extensively about uh, von Sternberg and uh, and your wife, Marie-Dominique, uh, has made a film about Marlene Dietrich. Talk about, because there's a, a binging opportunity right there. The six, I believe they did six films together in black and white. Yeah, now Sternberg was always a, a hero of mine. Of course, I met him. Uh, he came to Australia towards right at the end of his life, actually, in 1969, and uh, I had a chance to meet him. He was a very thorny character, very difficult. But but uh, in the end, I think we we you know we established a rapport, and uh, then later on, um, I wrote a little monograph about him. And luckily, it got into the hands of his son, Nicky, who's a very good cinematographer. And uh, I was able to meet up with him in Los Angeles. And he gave me a great deal of help writing a, a full-dressed uh, biography, which the yes, uh, University of uh, Kentucky Press brought out a few years ago. Um, and then, uh, as you say, Marie-Dominique, uh, uh, my wife, made a film about uh, Sternberg uh, working on The Blue Angel. Um, and uh, we went to uh, Berlin, we went out to uh, New Babelsberg and shot on the original sets, the original stages where in fact uh, Blue Angel was made and uh, uh, they still, because it was, it was in East Germany, those studios, for a long time, they preserved everything. And if it had been in the West, it would have been you know, demolished long since, but, uh, but it's all been preserved. And so I was able to stand right there on on the very spot where films like Metropolis and M and Blue Angel were made. It was a bit like, you know, a priest going to Notre Dame. It's this was an Ufa studio. Say again? This was Ufa. Ufa, yes, that's right. The Universum Filmage, yes. It's, um, uh, it's still pretty much the same, actually. There's there were so many... Name Joseph von Sternberg Street. So, so many uh, of the uh, predominantly Jewish uh, directors, uh, uh, people like Billy Wilder and Lubitsch and uh, had Fred Zinnemann, uh, had gotten, uh, Robert Siadmach had gotten their start at UFA. In that, That's right, uh, yeah. Mm. yeah I and later on in the beginning of the talkies. Mm. I loved it. Michael. I talked to Michael Powell about the UFA and I said, what was it like? And he said, Oh, it was incredible. He said, you'd go into an English studio and it'd be noisy and untidy and stuff lying around, you know, and you'd go to a French studio and they'd be all, uh, you know, drinking wine and carrying on and joking and everything. And you'd go to Ufa and, and it was like a kind of uh, laboratory. All the floors every day were, were mopped down with this black oil so that they gleamed. And all the directors... Uh, wore white gloves, which which indicated that they did not soil their hands with any lake, but they reserved their expertise exclusively for working with the actors on their performances. All the technical stuff was done by these uh, lesser, lesser orders. And you see so much of that, particularly in the films uh, of Paramount, where most of the directors I've just mentioned had worked. It's very clear in terms of lighting and look, uh, I guess which has been described as German Expressionism. Mm, yeah, that's right. Yeah, but Paramount had that quality. Um, Metro went for the gleaming kind of Scandinavian look, and uh, of course Warner's went for a rather rough and tough sort of uh, headline, uh, snatch from the headlines kind of style. Yeah, Warner Brothers was very Brooklyn. Say again? I say Warner Brothers was very Brooklyn. 
very Brooklyn. The Brooklyn yes, of that period of time. Mm-hmm. But very, very, very Paramount had that Europe. Paramount had that European quality. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, I think that uh, Chevalier came over. Uh, and, and appeared in a, a number of Lubitsch films. Uh, yeah, it was a great uh, laboratory for that uh, that elegance, I think we would call mm-hmm. it. And, and, you know, very European elegance it, as opposed to... Sorry, I missed that. I say very European elegance as opposed to, I would say, the somewhat artificial uh, Louis B. Mayer kind of elegance at, at MGM. Different mm-hmm. style entirely. Not quite as... Mm-hmm. Uh, John, also, uh, you know, you, more contemporary people. We first met. You were holding a copy of uh, a biography of Stanley Kubrick. So just That's to right. run down some of the, you've you've done Kubrick, you've done Lucas, you've done Spielberg, you've done uh, Woody Allen, who's been in the news lately. You have a comment about Woody? Uh, well, uh, it's 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 putting your head into the lion's mouth, isn't it? No, I, I think Woody has been very very bad mistreated. I think uh, uh, he's more sinned against than sinning. In fact, I know quite a bit about the history of uh, of his relationship with Mia, and uh, it's a very different picture to the one that she's put forward. But unfortunately, mud sticks, and uh, no one will ever believe uh, anything good about him ever again, which is a tragedy because he was he is one of the most gifted filmmakers of, of our times, I think. Yeah, I remember in the early 70s, uh, it, you know, we would line up on a Friday on a Friday night when the film opened in, in, in California or New York, anywhere in America at that point, uh, and you would see the same people on the line at every Woody Allen film that opened. We had to be the first in line. Uh, we'd been reading about it in the New York Times. We had been reading it perhaps in The New Yorker, and now we saw it, and then we went out and we had, uh, had coffee and drinks and uh, discussed it in, in great detail. It was a... Uh, it, it was a long relationship, any film that he had made. Yeah, I agree completely. And he was hugely respected by by actors and other directors. And, you know, it seems absurd that, that now they've all turned their back on him. Uh, right, I think it's, it's good business and it's... You know, it's part of the zeitgeist. Uh, not to uh, disparage uh, Me Too and, and the reaction that justifiably that we would have had to the likes of Harvey Weinstein and, and more subtle practitioners of that uh, behavior, uh, but everyone is, uh, is up for grabs right now, and uh, people are being stained uh, at some point unnecessarily, uh, and uh, hopefully the pendulum will swing back and we'll have a little more balance, uh, not, to, not to forget what brought this, uh, these reactions up, but to get back to a more uh, irrational approach to, uh, to what's going on. Oh, you don't want to jump into that. You let me take all the heat. <laughs> oh no! I leave that with you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll I'll take the heat from my women listeners. Uh, before I we close out this particular session, and I, and it's it's always great to have you as the uh, opening uh, star in my it's my in this new broadcast. Uh, and I will sing a, lo- a a little bit of a song. Uh, I mean, I'll be thinking of you because I remember a time when you were, shall we say, you're more representative of nicely nicely Johnson than you are now. Of course, uh, yes. I'm speaking of. <laughs> Of the uh, of the film uh, and the and the and the play, uh, guys and dolls. So just before we uh, get to close this out, here's a little bit of a song that uh, Brother Sky, who I like to think of myself, was singing to Sister Sarah. I've never been in love before, and all at once it's you, you forevermore. I've never been 
in love before. I thought my heart was safe. I thought I knew the score. Anyway, from Guys and Dolls. And John, just a, a parting thought uh, for, for our listeners around the world. A parting thought? Well, stay inside. Don't shake hands with anybody. And just hope this thing passes away so that we can get back to normal. You're back to normal. I, I look forward to it. I look forward to clinking a glass or two, as we've done in the past, at some uh, little petit cafe not too far from, uh, from your apartment. So uh, stay, stay safe. Keep writing. And uh, you're always welcome to join me here at uh, Café Terrence in Paris's Troisième Arrondissement. Absolutely. Always a, always a pleasure. Okay. So, uh, bonjour, au revoir, et merci, et à bientôt à Paris.